Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are recapping how the LA Rams were able to win Super Bowl 56, plus the surprises and disappointments from the NBA heading into the All-Star break, and how much pressure is there to end the MLB lockout. It's episode 61 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Again, everybody here on Thursday, February 17th, 2022, episode number 61 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We got a, just a couple quick announcements. We got some new podcasting platforms out there. If you want to go check this show out on Reason, we've also fixed our YouTube problems. We had some problems last episode uh, with the initial upload, but we re-uploaded and we got the full slate there. I don't know what was going on with that, but we fixed all of that. So if you want to go check out episode 60 with uh, special guest Emily Stratton previewing the Super Bowl, you can go check out the full version now on YouTube. Those errors are cleared out. And speaking of the Super Bowl, what a great Sunday it was. Just recapping what's gone on the past seven days since our last episode. It's been not that not that bad. It was a very eventful Sunday. I was able to go to the Celtics game in the afternoon. Then I went straight to work, got to watch the game. But let me tell you, it was very, very busy in the restaurant industry. For anyone who is curious, the restaurant industry is hard. <laughs> Just make sure you're treating all your servers, your bartenders, and even your takeout people, managing takeout. Uh, make sure you treat them uh, sincere and make sure you clear paths, essentially, to let them get through. Uh, but Sunday was great, even though I was working. I was able to watch most of the game. And then when I got back later this week, I was able to watch the full Super Bowl slate. And honestly, before we get into the game, I just want to talk about like all the pageantry. I thought it was great. I thought it was a really good, entertaining Super Bowl, all the way from you know the opening you know ceremony, stuff like that, to the halftime show. Halftime show was entertaining. I mean, I was able to preview it with Emily Stratton last week, and I thought, I thought it was good. It was one, it was one of the best. I think just seeing the the landscape of it, you know, looking basically like downtown Compton, California, and it felt like sort of a celebration of rap and hip hop. It wasn't like you know we'll play your favorite tunes or whatever. This was kind of like it felt like you know these were the building blocks to create what rap and hip hop is now. And I'm glad it got to take center stage. So it was very entertaining. And the game, all in all, I thought was uh, entertaining as well. I won't put it, you know, in, you know, maybe best Super Bowls of all time. If you go back to maybe Giants Patriots or Seahawks Patriots, you know, those kind of games like that. I wouldn't put it there, but it was still a very good game. And obviously the L.A. Rams were able to get their first Super Bowl since they've been in Los Angeles with a 23 20 victory. Now, I should say Los Angeles because they've won the Super Bowl before in the late 90s, but they were in St. Louis. They never won a Super Bowl when they were in LA the first time. 
Then they came back to LA. This is the first ever LA Rams Super Bowl. But talking about the game in general, what happened on the field, starting on the LA side of the things, I just thought the LA, they controlled the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. I felt like they controlled it all game long. I mean, you got seven sacks, including four combined by Aaron Donald, Von Miller. I thought the way the defense was able to take control, you know, they were held down a little bit in that first half. They only had like one sack. And then in the second half, they had six, but then the Bengals secondary just couldn't keep up uh, with all the offense. I thought the way the Rams and Sean McVay, they came out on fire, Uh, getting, getting that lead early on. It was 13 to three at one point I thought was huge. And then second half, you know, they started off, a little shaky, a little bit held down, but then it took that very last drive uh, to really get things going. I thought the MVP Cooper Cup well deserved. You know, it would have been to it would have been him or it would have been Aaron Donald for me, but I would have thrown my vote to Cooper Cup. I mean, eight receptions, ninety-two yards for two touchdowns, and honestly, when you think about it, half of those numbers you could say were on that uh, final drive right there, and. You know, he had the fourth down uh, jet sweep run. Incredible. And honestly, I think he may have become the best wide receiver in the NFL after this game. I think, you know, you don't win the triple crown and don't get the acknowledgement. You know, with all due respect to Devontae Adams and Stefan Diggs and Justin Jefferson, all those guys, I think the way Cooper Cup was able to rise above the pressure was so important for LA. And I don't think, that Rams team has the success the way it is. And don't, don't forget, you know, he performed extremely well. He was getting more targets and more catches after Odell Beckham had that injury. Cause when you think about it, if OBJ in my mind, if OBJ didn't get hurt and he stayed for a full 60 minutes, I think it would have been a runaway for the Rams. I, I really do. I mean, you look at that first drive when uh, OBJ caught that touchdown, beautiful fade route. And then maybe on that trick play, you know, we've seen Beckham throw it in the past. You know, maybe he wouldn't have overthrown Stafford like Cup did. But, you know, I I felt bad for OBJ because he was basically like locked up in Cleveland. Then he comes to a winning team. He finally gets to play in a Super Bowl. But I'm glad he got a ring, though. I'm just glad he got a ring. But to me, what sealed it, obviously, was that last drive. I mentioned the last drive over and over and over, but sealing the deal LA did with a 15 play 79 yard drive that took nearly five minutes off the clock. Now, just really quickly, the red zone penalties, I would say they were mostly the right call. And that again, goes back to the secondary of Cincinnati, not being able to keep up, but you're seeing the difference between a second year quarterback and a 13th year quarterback. We've seen Matthew Stafford do this over and over in Detroit, being able to manage games, and basically seal the deal, which is what he did for L.A. this past Sunday. We've seen it multiple times in Detroit. We finally got to see it in L.A. And props to Matthew Stafford. I mean, two interceptions uh, in that game were, to, to me, like the first one should have been, you know, you don't underthrow that one to Van Jefferson. You got to throw it at least out of bounds. The second one went off the receiver's hand, so it was not entirely his fault. But to see him come back, from uh, those kind of plays, very impressive. And from the struggles in Detroit to now a Super Bowl champion, glad to see that for Matthew Stafford. 
But on the other side of the things, I feel like this was more about, you know, the Bengals. They just couldn't rise to the occasion. Again, this is a very young team with a young head coach, Zach Taylor, only in his third year. But I just thought some of the play calls um, and the way they were able to manage the game just weren't they weren't that effective. I mean, you look at on their first drive, fourth and one, you're at midfield and you want to go for it. That's when you got to be smart and just play it safe. I mean, you punt the ball, you're making the Rams charge all the way down the field. If you're giving an offense like the Rams that kind of field position, it burns you. And that's exactly what it did on that first touchdown pass from Stafford to Beckham. That's where it burns you. But then you also rely too much on the big plays rather than sustainable drives. You know, you had the trick play with Joe Mixon throwing the touchdown. And then on back-to-back plays to start the second half, you get the 75-yard catch by T. Higgins, and then you get the interception on the very next play. So for the Bengals, it's going to be about, and for Joe Burrow, it's going to be about being able to sustain drives. You know, you don't go for the big chunk play every single time. And that's what it felt like it was uh, with what Cincinnati was doing. You know, they had a couple of good runs by Mixon, but they really couldn't get the run game going. Jamar Chase was, you know, kind of held down. He only had really, I would say, two big receptions. Uh, But for what L.A. was able to do defensively, I thought they were able to shut uh, the offense down for the most part but it was just those big plays that really kept Cincinnati uh, into things. That's, that's what I really think happened uh, with Cincinnati and why Joe Burrow and that offense was able to score the way they did was just big plays, big plays. And obviously they missed the offensive pass interference on T Higgins for that touchdown. So if you take that away, there wasn't really much that the offense did to really put points on the board. I mean, defensively it, w- it was hard to stop them like I I didn't have you know they stopped the run which I thought was absolutely huge but in terms of the passing game they probably could have doubled Cooper Cup a lot more bring a lot more pressure onto Stafford and collapsing the pocket you know but again it's a young team it's a young Cincinnati team where I think their future does look very bright because they've I think they have their foundation they have their quarterback who I think, and mostly everyone thinks, is a top 10 quarterback in the entire league. Um, You got a great foundational offense. You got a great running back and a bunch of great wide receivers, including a surefire number one for years to come. And then, you know, just tweaking the defense a little bit. You got the run stop, but then just coaching the secondary and uh, the safeties and everyone back there uh, to keep it going. But obviously, everyone's going to look at the offensive line, okay? That's got to be priority number one is protect Joe Burrow. Because if this offensive line stays the way they is, Joe Burrow is not going to have a long career. Okay. And the goal is to get Cincinnati back to the big game. And I think they can do that, but they have to get protection for, for Joe Burrow. So whether that's going into free agency, you know, maybe uh, Armstead is a big free agent out there from New Orleans, or you go into the draft, you know, maybe trade up to get a uh, big offensive lineman. Something like that. But the road, the road does get harder, but the Bengals have a good team. They're a good young foundation. I mean, it, they do have the harder road, obviously, than the L.A. side of things because you've got Kansas City, Buffalo, uh, the Chargers, possibly the Broncos if they want to get Aaron Rodgers. The Patriots are rising. 
the Dolphins look good, the Titans, the Colts. I mean, you name it. The AFC, the road is harder there than it is in the NFC. So I still have faith in Cincinnati that they can still be a good team. I don't know if they're going to get back next year, but I feel like, you know, the way Joe Burrow has been able to play in only his second year in the league, second year in the league, there's still plenty of time for him to get back to the big game. You just don't want him going the Dan Marino side of things, you know, go to one, lose it, and then never go back there again. So Cincinnati, get offensive line, protect your franchise quarterback, get offensive line. But on the other side for the Rams, I mean, obviously it's difficult to see the Rams retaining almost all starters like Tampa Bay did a year ago. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to do what Tampa did and bring back all 22 starters. I mean, you've got Andrew Whitworth, who's going to retire. Vaughn Miller's probably going to get a payday, uh, probably somewhere else. Odell Beckham injury, he might make it affordable, might make him uh, hang on a little bit. But then you had the big stories of Sean McVay, Aaron Donald. They were talking about retirement. Listen. Sean McVay ain't going nowhere. He's 36 years old and he just won a Super Bowl. Okay, he's got maybe another five to 10 years at the minimum, at least in my eyes. Sean McVay in this game put himself among, you know, the great coach. I'm not going to say he's the greatest coach, you know, because I still put Belichick and Shula and Madden, uh, Cower, you know, all those guys ahead of him. But he's definitely within consideration, you know, with some of – you know, he's had a bunch of guys come off his coaching tree. So we'll we'll see what happens there. But I don't see Sean McVay going anywhere. I don't see Aaron Donald going anywhere, especially when you look at the parade, him shirtless saying, let's run it back, let's run it back. I don't see the Rams going anywhere. But I do think their road is a lot easier uh, than Cincinnati's side of things. But all in all, it was a great Super Bowl Sunday. And congratulations once again to the Los Angeles Rams for winning Super Bowl 56. football season officially over all attention is going to turn to the nba but we really can't get into it too much until next week because we got the all-star break coming up we got the big events uh happening in cleveland starting with the uh, rising stars and then the celebrity game then you got uh the saturday night with the uh, skills challenge and the dunk contest three-point shootout and then obviously the big game but we got roughly two months to go in this nba regular season and if you thought there was parity in the NFL, look at the NBA and look at the standings that they have gone under. I mean, it was, it's insane. Who would have thought, you know, looking at the standings the way they are in the NBA, that they would be where they are? Because to me, they are nowhere near where I thought they would be. And I just want to talk briefly as we head into the All Star break, some of the surprises and the disappointments. Uh, that I've seen in the NBA so far. And I think on the surprise side of things, the biggest one has to be Cleveland. It's got to be the Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, I've talked about them for the past three weeks or so. I mean, the way they have been able to basically go from the seller to now one of the top teams in the Eastern Conference right now at two and a half back of first place. They're 35 and 23. and Honestly, with the way 
how tight that Eastern Conference is, you know, with the just looking at it right now, with the Hawks only nine and a half back in that 10th spot. But then you've got Brooklyn, who's at number eight, only six and a half back. It is tight. And the fact that Cleveland, Cleveland is in the mix blows my mind. It blows my mind that they're sitting fourth place in the Eastern Conference right now. And I kind of made the comparison a while back, but I think that this year's Cavs team is a lot like last year's New York Knicks. You know, they've got a great defense to support, kind of a lacking offense, but I'm still, I think their offense is better than New York's offense was a year ago, but it's a team that you didn't think would be that uh, really good. And now here they are within the top four. It's just a matter of how far can they get because they've got the best defense in the NBA in terms of uh, opponents' points per game. They're seventh in the league in points differential. The problem is they're 23rd in offense. If they've got plenty of scoring, they've got plenty of scoring all throughout it. I've mentioned it. They've got about seven guys uh, on their active roster who are averaging over 10 points a game, but it's a matter of you know getting more points. I mean, the sentiments to me remain the same is that you've got Darius Garland and Jared Allen uh, as your two all-stars for Cleveland leading the charge for probably, I'd say, at least the next five years or so, something like that, because you've got a great core with those two. Then if you get Colin Sexton back from injury, you also have Evan Mobley. They've got a lot of young guys, but there's one thing that I haven't talked about and what doesn't really get brought up enough for Cleveland is the acquisition of Rajon Rondo, because Let's just keep this in mind. Ricky Rubio was going to be their backup point guard, and he was their backup uh, for the most part of the year, and then he tears his ACL. What do they do? They basically get a counterpart in Rajon Rondo from the Lakers. Rubio and Rondo are essentially the same players where they're more of a pass-first point guard. Offense is a little minimal, but you know they can bring it, and their defense improves as much as they can. So, I want to give full credit to the Cavs organization for getting Rondo for basically getting Rubio, you know, getting Ricky Rubio before he was, he was Rubio getting Rajon Rondo to lead the second unit off the bench and basically be that point guard, be that floor general that we know he can be is creating kind of a career resurgence, not just for him, but for Cleveland in general. And I'm very curious to see uh, what the Cavs do in the second half of the year, if, if they start to maybe come down to earth, maybe if they fall into that play in opportunity or if they, you know, continue the success uh, the way they are. I think I'm on that kind of side of things. I'm on the latter half of that. They can't sustain the success. I don't know if they're going to stay within the top four, but I do think they, at the minimum, uh, they will make the playoffs. Don't get me wrong about that. Even if they go into the play in, I think they will get out of that wherever they are, uh, seven through 10. I do think they get out of that and they do get themselves into a best of seven series, no matter what it is. But that's in the Eastern Conference. I think the surprise in the Western Conference, uh, the biggest one has to be Memphis. The Memphis Grizzlies, you know, I said, you know, when they got eliminated from uh, the playoffs last year by Utah, that success is coming for the Grizzlies. Success is coming. But I don't think anyone expected uh, for them to be where they are right now in the number three spot at 41 and 19, eight games back in that number one spot in the Western Conference. I mean, they're just coming off 
after, you know, before last night's loss, they had won six straight in nine of their last 10. And their offense has just been incredible. They've scored over 120 in all six of those victories with an average margin of 17 points for a victory. And anytime you talk about Memphis, you have to talk about Ja Morant. You have to, because he is cementing his superstar status. He's the seventh leading scorer in the NBA. And the team in general is the third best offense behind the Jazz and the Hornets. Now, what makes Memphis so great is not just, you know, obviously it's Morant, but they've got a great combination of offense and defense from most of their rotation, especially if you look down the block at the four or five spot with Jaron Jackson Jr. and Steven Adams. They're the top team in the rebounding margin and they're fifth in turnovers force. So this team plays offense as well as they play defense. And that's what sort of helped them out. And sometimes you see it uh, in the first half of the, of the season is you have really good offenses struggling and why you see top defenses uh, have the most success early on. So again, similar to Cleveland, how, well, how far does this team take a step back? But they're in a good spot right now in the number three spot. They're four up on uh, Utah, who's in the fourth spot uh, right now. And they're only a game and a half back of Golden State for that number two spot. So they could easily get themselves into that number two seed. I don't think anyone catches Phoenix, which is, is just on fire. I think they're the favorites right now in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns. But for Memphis, I'm very impressed to see how much of a jump that they have made. I, I did say uh, when we had Chandler Hutchison and Pat Mahoney on before the season, I said Memphis could take the biggest jump and take the biggest leap uh, going from the number eight spot in the playoffs to, you know, better than that. I did not think it would be the third seed in the NBA, in the Western Conference. Absolutely not. Never would have thought that. So credit to Memphis for making a jump. And also credit to Minnesota. Well, I think that's my uh, next biggest surprise. is got to be the Minnesota Timberwolves. I mean, they're shockingly in the playoff hunt. This is only, it has to be like only the second time in the last maybe 20 years or so uh, that Minnesota minus Kevin Garnett is actually contending for the playoffs right now. I mean, they're currently three games above 500 and right now sitting in the seventh seed for that first play in spot, only two and a half games back of Denver who sits in number six. Now everyone looks at the Timberwolves and sees Carl Anthony Towns. I mean, he's an all-star for a reason. He's averaged a double-double for basically six straight seasons. But I give full credit to two people. Number one, I give to Anthony Edwards. I mean, possibly the best second option that Towns has had in his career. Obviously, he had the friction with uh, Jimmy Butler, and then Andrew Wiggins just couldn't go uh, succeed to expectations. And D'Angelo Russell has kind of faltered after being an all-star. But the improvements that Anthony Edwards has made from his rookie year to his sophomore year is very impressive to see. He's gone from uh, 19 points a game last year to 22 points a game. That, that might not be a big jump, but for a team like Minnesota who has struggled to find foundational pieces, that's very impressive. Very impressive for Edwards. So he's the first guy I give credit to. The second one I give credit to is Malik Beasley. Now everyone knows he can score, but Bringing him off the bench, I think that gives him some great scoring depth for Minnesota. I mean, they're the fourth best offense 
in the NBA at nearly 114 points per game. And I think part of that is, you know, telling Beasley, listen, we love your scoring. We want you to be that first option off the bench. We want you to be that sixth man. And sure enough, look at what's happened to Minnesota. They're in the playoff hunt. Now, are they legit playoff contenders? You know, do I see them going after a championship? Absolutely not. And I don't even know if I see them coming out of the play-in if they stay the way they are. But I give full credit to Minnesota for at least being contenders. And they've separated themselves, you know, very greatly. Because when you look at where they are, they've got a good uh, two and a half games up on the Clippers who are under 500 right now. So all Minnesota has to do is just maintain that 500 uh, pace. And bam, you're right back into the playoffs probably in the play-in though. So again, props to Minnesota for, you know, being the way they are, sustaining the way they are. They're not legit contenders, but to see where they are versus in years past, give credit to Minnesota. But that's the surprising side of things. Let's talk about disappointments. And I feel like the obvious one has to be Brooklyn. I mean, it has to be Brooklyn. I mean, in terms of potential what this team could do. This was a team that was basically the consensus uh, champion in the NBA in some people's eyes, a definite lock out of the Eastern Conference, you know, and now the big three has totally disintegrated. James Harden forcing his way off the nets. Kevin Durant again missing uh, the All-Star game. He's missed 22, uh, 23 games, I should say. And then Kyrie Irving being that annoying part-time player. I mean, this was a team before their back-to-back wins versus Sacramento and then against New York last night, had lost 11 straight games. 11 straight. How many championship teams do you know have a double-digit losing streak and still win the championship? Not in my eyes. And obviously, they're hoping to turn things around with the big trade, you know, bringing back Ben Simmons, bringing Andre Drummond, and bringing Seth Curry. I do like Seth Curry to fill in for Joe Harris, as the team shooter, I don't have a lot of faith that Harris is going to come back uh, this season from that ankle injury. I don't know if Ben Simmons can fulfill the offense that Harden brought. That's just going to put more on the load of uh, Durant and Irving and uh, probably Curry as well. I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. And, you know, Ben Simmons talked about, you know, um, you know, mental health and, you know, being in a better spot physically and mentally, I got to be very cautious with what I say, but I just feel like that was kind of, you know, I I don't argue that he might've had mental health problems, but I do think, you know, for Philadelphia, the way they treated Ben Simmons, basically from the time of that Atlanta playoff series to uh, this moment right now, I, that's the only way I see Ben Simmons, you know, respectfully not being able to play with the 76ers, you know, again, on a very, easy tightrope. And I don't doubt that there were any, you know, I don't doubt that there were mental health problems for Ben Simmons, because come on, yeah, the whole city of Philadelphia, the head coach and the star players saying, this guy stinks. We're not going to work with him. And meanwhile, you know, he was not the sole reason for that uh, Philadelphia playoff elimination last year. So I don't know if Ben Simmons is going to be the same guy on Brooklyn and fulfill the offense that Harden brought, but it just terms of disappointment, they're sitting in eighth right now. And with as tight as the Eastern Conference is, 
I don't know if they're going to be able to be that championship contender that everyone thinks they are. I do think they get better once they get Durant back. Hopefully the vaccine mandate gets lifted by New York uh, once the numbers are a little bit more controlled and the rotation is back to where it was. I mean, last night I was able to watch a little bit of that game. They got some great depth behind them. Cam Thomas probably might be the next young uh, star for that Nets team whenever Durant and uh, Irving uh, say their farewells in the NBA. I just, I don't know in terms of championship level, if Brooklyn is going to be that team, because you got great teams like the Bulls, the Heat, the Bucks, uh, the Cavs, the Sixers, even the rising Celtics and Raptors. I don't know if Brooklyn's going to be able to leapfrog them and be true championship contenders. So that's why I put a big disappointment on there is because they had potentials of title town and now Harden is gone and Brooklyn is sitting in eighth right now in the East. But I think another disappointment is probably maybe the team that's more that no team is more happy to hit the all-star break than the Lakers right now. LA Lakers, probably the second biggest disappointment right now in the NBA. And it's hard to say that with a team that has a bunch of stars like LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook. Now, the argument about, you know, the Lakers being disappointing is that, you know, some expectations weren't at a championship level. I know I did say I thought the Lakers were, would uh, get to the title game. That was kind of like a joke for me. And then I said they get better and better, but obviously I was proven wrong right there. And just Russell Westbrook and company, they just don't fit. And then you got Anthony Davis missing more time with another injury. And then you got the rest of the roster outside of maybe three or four guys. They're just old and washed up. Now, I'm not going to put full blame on Russell Westbrook because I think that's just, in easy, A, it's an easy route, and B, it's just, it's just not true because he's still playing great. He's still, you know, you ask all, all teams in the NBA, they would still probably take him. That's not the sole reason why this team stinks. The reason they stink is because nobody plays defense. They've got the fifth, fifth worst defense overall, okay? They just can't sustain it. Carmelo Anthony is past his prime. Anthony Davis continues to get hurt. Dwight Howard is old and washed up. And then you've got these young guys like Malik Monk, uh, Austin Reeves, I think, is the other guy. Taylor Horton Tucker, they're not what L.A. thought they would be when they uh, signed them and put them in the rotation. I just don't think that's that's not what the Lakers I just don't know what to say. They, they just stink. They stink, and they're not championship contenders right now, and they're not ever going to be unless they make some dramatic change. You know, And I'm not going to say it's firing the head coach, uh, but it's going to be a huge roster toner, turnover because ultimately their future was given up for Russell Westbrook, all because they got desperate and you know panicked over finishing in seventh last year with an injured LeBron James and an injured Anthony Davis, you know? So the Lakers just kind of ruined their future with that trade, not to put any knock on Russell Westbrook because he's a surefire hall of famer, but the Lakers are just not where they were two years ago. But then lastly, in terms of disappointments, I have to put in the New York Knicks, especially after last night. Now to those who thought the Knicks would be good again, myself included, welcome to reality. And blowing a 28-point lead to basically Brooklyn's JV squad. You know, they didn't have any of their big three. Their best player on the floor was Cam Thomas, a rookie. Um, you know, they lose to Brooklyn. 
which I heard from uh, the telecast was the third loss in the last seven games where they've led by 20, 20 points. And I don't know what happened. The Knicks are just turning into a one hit wonder, especially Julius Randle. I mean, that that's your starting point right there. His scoring has dropped nearly five points this year from 24 to 19 and a half. Okay. Then you've got Derek Rose hurt for months. I mean, this is a team who thought their offense would get better with the signing of Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier. They thought, oh, Kemba and those knee problems, that's just because he was in Boston. Evan Fournier, look at what he did in the Olympics. We, he can do that here in New York. Now look at them. They're the fourth worst offense in the NBA. Fournier's making $20 million a year, and he's only averaging 14 and a half points. And you've got Kemba Walker, who was out of the rotation at one point, only averaging about 12 points a game. So New York is back to the cellar where they've been since the Patrick Ewing days, 25 and 34, 13 games back of the number one seed. And they are just looking at it real quick, three and a half games out of that plan spot. So maybe they can turn things around, but they did nothing at the deadline. So I don't know how New York is going to be able to turn things around, but all in all, it's been a very exciting NBA season so far. And once we get out of the all-star break in Cleveland, the action in the National Basketball Association is sure to intensify. Now, while we've got some great action going on, on the court and on the field, let's talk about something that's gone on off the field. And that is the fact that MLB continues to be in a lockout. It's been over about two months, I'd say. And there's been basically little to no progress. And obviously, it's, it, it gets amplified because this week was the time where pitchers and catchers start to report uh, down in their spring training facilities. And from what we've heard, a spring training delay and is basically inevitable. That's essentially what it is, because there had only been maybe a month of free agency before uh, the, the uh, MLB went into a lockout. And as I said, pitchers and catchers start to report now. You get spring training starting at the end of the month and the beginning of March. And then you've got opening day at the end of March. And that's really the target date that everyone's got to watch out for now is opening day. Will that get delayed? If this thing goes on for maybe another week or two, then I would say it's absolutely definite. Now, I, I will honestly say that I am not an expert in this. I have not been following this as deeply, deeply as I am, but I have picked out a few things. Um, we do know, you know, while there hasn't been a lot of progress made, there are some agreements that have been brought on by the union and uh, by owners. A universal designated hitter, I think, is a great move a draft lottery for uh, competitive balance. But the big thing that I'm seeing right now is the minor league system. That's the, ultimately, I think it's the last thing that they are disagreeing on. This is really the only thing that's really keeping it from uh, ending the lockout, essentially, is agreeing upon a minor league system. And essentially what I've read is that the players want to keep the minor league system and have equity and the owners basically don't want any part of it. They don't want any minor league system at all. Now 
Today is when the players are going to respond to the latest proposal that the owners have brought up. The competitive balance tax threshold was up by $2 million. Uh, The pre-arbitration bonus pool was increased from 10 to $15 million and a bunch of other stuff like that. But we're still seeing from the owners that they want to roughly eliminate a ton of jobs uh, from the minor league system. The MLB, you know, you got to remember back in December of 2020, 40 minor league teams, over 40 minor league teams were basically axed. No more. And that's a max of 180 minor league players allowed. And now the MLB wants to shorten it to 150, which if you're doing the math, that's about 900 less jobs uh, in the minor league system. Like, seriously, you want to eliminate more? You want to eliminate more jobs after you took away 900? What do you want to do? Get, like, all of them? Do you not want to have a minor league system at all? And what the players are arguing for is a greater salary. Because when you look at minor league salary versus major league uh, salary, the minimum is nowhere close. The minimum for AAA is 16800 High A is 12,000, low A is 9,600. That means you're telling these minor league players, you basically got to get a part-time job to continue making a living. And that is shameful. That is shameful by the owners to continue to do that. So what the players union is saying is we want these minor league players to be paid, maybe not necessarily like us, but better than where they are. The minimum has to be increased. And ultimately the owners have their feet stuck in the mud and are saying we're not going anywhere on this we want to get rid of the minor league system is essentially what they're saying and which is why i'm siding with the players on this one and the players union has been able to be um flexible they've been flexible on a couple of things they've agreed onto some things but this is the one thing that they stand for and the mlb saying you know we want to uh make a pay cut by getting rid of maybe 1800 jobs essentially. So what the MLB is saying is that we want to save money by getting rid of more jobs. And essentially that is not the right way to con the, uh, to conduct themselves. Absolutely not. The fact that they've been so rooted in this, that they don't make any, any changes whatsoever is absolutely shameful. Shameful by the, well, first off on both sides, it's shameful that there was a lockout even to begin with. And the fact that it's getting into the spring training side of things, let's face it, baseball might not be as popular as it was back in the day, but it's still America's pastime. I know for me, I love seeing baseball. I love watching baseball. Yes, it might be boring, but it's still a great sport to watch. And look at last year, how many young people they brought in with the emergence of Shohei and Vlad Jr. Now you're basically saying, oh, because we don't want to see players like that anymore. We're uh, we're going to basically distance ourselves. Like That's shameful. It's shameful what the owners are doing. But to get to the overarching question of how much pressure is there to get it started, the pressure is now up to maybe 2,000% for both the MLB owners and its players. Because let's face it, Both sides want to play baseball. And the fact is everyone wants them to play baseball. And the fact that this is the one thing 
the minor league system that is stopping them from getting anything done is is absolutely sad. And the fact that their commissioner is about as dumb as a doornail, not even knowing the competitive tax balance or the draft penalties, that just shows how dumb the owners are for wanting this kind of proposal. So if you ask me, the pressure is to get this done today, essentially. And But from what I'm hearing, the players are saying no. They're going to say no. And unless the owners say, yes, we will increase the salary, and yes, we will keep the 180 minor league players allowed, that's okay. Then, then there's still going to be a lockout, essentially. There's still going to be a lockout. And I'd say from the most recent lockouts, you know, you go back to the uh, back in 2011 when the NFL was locked out and then the NBA was locked out. This has to be the worst management of a lockout in recent sports history. So Commissioner Rob Manfred has got a total red flag on him. And let's face it, he wasn't even a good commissioner to start out with. He wasn't even that good. And the fact that he's trying to manage a lockout with his kind of strategies, baseball might be in danger. But I know I speak for many fans around the world saying to the owners and the players, get this situation under control and the lockout so we can once again watch Major League Baseball. We turn now, as we always do, to our Let's Get Local segment of the week and kind of quiet once again in the Boston area. Uh, but, but before we get really deep into anything, I want to congratulate former Patriot Richard Seymour for making the Hall of Fame. What's funny about, you know, the mid-2000s Patriots and the, 20, uh, the 2000s, you know, this era is that you get a lot of guys that are overlooked in terms of the Hall of Fame. I mean, Rodney Harrison should already be in. Um, Richard Seymour probably should have gotten in maybe a year or two ago. Uh, Vince Wilfork is going to be up for eligibility. So you got a bunch of guys that are kind of overlooked in terms of this dynasty run. So we'll see what happens in future hall of fame voting, but I expect hopefully a few more Patriots to get into the hall of fame. But for this year, I congratulate Richard Seymour, maybe one of the best defensive linemen in Patriots history, but that's a tiny note. Let's talk about the big note, and that's the Celtics. Because not only are the people of Boston talking about them, but the entire nation is talking about them. Obviously, they had the big nine-game winning streak, came to an end last night in Detroit. And, you know, I don't really fault them that much. It was a second night of a back-to-back. I know they were rested, but still, with traveling from Philadelphia to Boston, then playing the next night. And Detroit came out uh, on fire. They looked well-rested, and uh, they played maybe the best game of the year against the Red Hot Celtics team. Now, in terms of what the team has been doing before that game, again, I'm kind of those cautious, optimistic fans. You know, I'm slowly buying in, but I'm not fully sold on the circumstances. Now, the Denver win last Friday, and then the Atlanta game that I was able to see on Sunday was great. But then you get a blowout of a hardenless Philly team. But the argument to that is that even without Rob Williams, the defense were, was able to hold 
Joel Embiid to three of nine shooting and only 19 points and nine rebounds. So that's sort of where I'm slowly buying into things. And then you also have, you know, them making history as the first team in NBA history to win three straight road games by over 30 points. I, I give full credit to this Celtics team. I think they're right to where I thought they would be. They're mid-pack right now in the NBA. Currently, I believe they're sitting at sixth right now, right behind Philly. Uh, just pulling up the standings real quick. They're four and a half back of Chicago, who's in first place. They're a game and a half back of uh, Philadelphia, two back of Cleveland, two and a half of Milwaukee. So, but again, they're in sixth right now. They're right where I think everyone thought they would be. And obviously the first half of the season was horrible. They were maybe the most underachieving team in the NBA, but now they've turned things around after the coach calls them out. And then you get tweets from Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart saying, just watch what happens. And sure enough, here they come turning things around. But in that nine game winning streak, I would say um, in terms of really good wins, I would say uh, Charlotte, Denver, Atlanta, and probably Philly. I'll pro- throw in his little asterisk. They were probably the most impressive wins that I would say everyone else were kind of uh, just kind of throwaways and stuff like that. Um, but the way this team has responded, you know, Jason Tatum uh, continues his scoring ways. I'm still kind of like hesitant to say um, he's really turned things around just because I still think his decision-making in terms of uh, isolation is, is still, it still needs to get better. Cause you know, there were multiple times that I was watching from the garden, watching him sort of shoot his fadeaways over double teams. And I thought, you know, you probably could have kicked it out, you know, to guys who are playing much better, like Grant Williams. He's shooting much better and with confidence from three. You've got Al Horford who can stretch the floor. Even guys like Derek White are making things better. But I think the big key to watch out for is these possible injuries to Marcus Smart and Rob Williams. I think this opens the door for the young players to really – get some minutes, get some minutes. Cause let's face it. Ime Odoka has been riding with an eight man rotation right now. And that's, you know, that's not going to work for a full year in my eyes. I think if you continue to play an eight man rotation with the many minutes that they've had, you know, it's going to hurt them once it comes down to March or when it comes down to April and these guys might be gas, might be a little bit tired. Their body's starting to wear down. So coach Udoka is going to have to maybe experiment with guys like Peyton Pritchard, or Aaron Neesmith, or maybe even Sam Hauser and Daniel Tice, possibly get them some minutes, you know, using these injuries to, to see who are the guys that you can trust into a 10 or an 11 man rotation, at least during the regular season. Then when you get to the postseason, you can go back to that shrunken eight man rotation. That's really what I'm, I'm looking for with the Celtics team coming out of the all-star break. You know, because you don't get Derek White. Look, look at how well Derek White has, uh, how well he's gelled with this team. He's basically a much better Dennis Schroeder right now. The way he's able to drive to the basket and his shooting is slowly getting better and better. And then you got Daniel Tice who came in and filled for uh, Rob Williams in the rotation. I thought he did great. But I want to watch uh, the second half of the year because the first game coming out, of the all-star break is in Brooklyn a week from today. 
at 7.30. Now, we don't know. We know that um, Irving's not going to play if the vaccine mandate stays the way it is. But we don't know if Kevin Durant's going to play. We don't know if Ben Simmons is going to be good enough. Remember, this was a team in Brooklyn who basically lit up their JV squad for an over 30-point win, 35-point win, just looking at it right now. But then in the second half of the schedule, you also you've got Memphis, you've got Dallas, you go back out west to play Golden State and Denver. Uh, you're going to play Milwaukee again. You're going to play Chicago again, Miami again. This second half is going to be very important. Do I think they can continue to be as hot as they are? Probably not. But in terms of closing out games, you know, similar to last night, they kind of struggled closing out games. But again, I put the asterisk on the fact that there was no Marcus Smart and no Rob Williams. You know, I'm not going to take the cheese just yet, but I'm very, very close to grabbing it and saying this Celtics team is legit. And it kind of helps with how tight that East is. You can really maybe put, you could put your money on the Celtics, you know, for the way the conference is, the way the, how tight the East is, but we'll see what happens coming out of the all-star break. You know, it'll be fun to see uh, Jason Tatum take part in the all-star game as a starter. Uh, but coming out of the break, we'll have to see what happens with the Celtics team. If they continue this hot run that they've been on, but a team that hasn't been hot are the Bruins. And that's the last team we're talking about again, quiet here in the city of Boston, but for the Bruins, it has not been pretty since the all-star break. Right now, they're sitting at 27, 16, and 4, and they've lost three of their last four games, which includes the shootout loss to the Rangers last Tuesday. And obviously part of it is going to be the absence of maybe your two best players and Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand. You got Bergeron, who's been uh, injured, but it looks like he'll be back uh, for tonight's game, taking on, I believe it's Ottawa they'll be taking on. Uh, and then you got Brad Marchand, who's still suspended for six games. Uh, I'm sorry, they're actually in they're in Long Island. They're taking on the Islanders, I should say. But again, Bergeron, he might be back. It'll be good to see the captain back on the ice, and Bergeron still serving his suspension. He's still got three more games to go. Uh, next time he'll be active is actually a week from today in Seattle taking on the Kraken. But so far, what I've seen the last couple of games. They've been outscored 8-3 to three in their last three games, including a 6-0 loss to Carolina. I mean, you talk about, you know, moving the puck and offense in general. Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand are the two guys, are the engines that make them go. And I will, I don't even arguably say, I think they are the two most important pieces on that Bruins team. And the fact that they're not there means you got to put it in Pasternak's hand, you got to put it in Hall's hands, in Coyle, McAvoy, all these guys, you know, who might not have a ton of experience about uh, being a leader in that Bruins locker room. So I don't know who essentially Bruce Cassidy ba basically dawned on to say, you'll, you'll be the captain until Patrice comes back. Um, but you're seeing it, you know, the absence of the captain and the absence of Marshan, bad turnovers. That's is the problem so far they're all of seven and power play opportunities in the last three games and that's just managing the puck and getting good zone time that's you know it, it shows how important bergeron is i don't really talk about martian because martian's a goal scorer and we know that 
they have a ton of goal scorers on this team. But if you take away Marshawn, that kind of limits them uh, pretty much. But in terms of just moving the puck and communicating well on the ice, getting good line changes, that shows how bad Patrice Bergeron is missed on this team. And they got to get him back as soon as they can. Because let's face it, this team, while they have the they have a good gap in uh, that last wild card spot, as I say over and over, they've got plenty of points right now on the Red Wings. Just doing the uh, doing the math real quick, they've got um, eight points on the Red Wings right now. They're still in a good spot, but they cannot falter anymore. We are we know that now with Tuka Rask retired, we know what the goaltending situations look like. It's Allmark and Swayman. We know what the line looks like when they're healthy. We know Pasternak is on that second line, but now he's got to go to the first line because your top two players are gone. You're going to have to see Coyle step up. You got to see uh, the defense get better. You know, as I say, there are a lot of missing pieces for this Bruins team, and they got to start working again on all cylinders. And they will get better. When Bergeron comes back and Marshawn comes back, they will be better. But it's a matter of managing managing these kinds of games because let's face it they have not done a good job of that at all with the absence of Bergeron and Marshawn but we'll see what happens to this Bruins team as they take on the Islanders tonight and continue to play on and play on and hopefully the Bruins can turn things around and get themselves back to their winning ways Lastly, as we always do to end our show, it's our LOL moment of the week. And if we watched the Super Bowl parade yesterday in L.A., there are a lot of nominees, but there can only be one. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Les Snead, the general manager for the L.A. Rams. Now, as I said, the parade had a lot of moments, but it's the GM that gets the nod. Why does he get the nod? Because of his attire. Take a look at this picture that he had on the parade in LA. He had an F them picks shirt. Now, if you don't know, the Rams basically traded all of their first and second round picks for big time players. And they haven't had a first round pick since picking Jared Goff number one in 2016. And the next time they'll get one, is not until 2024. They got to wait another two years to get a first-round pick unless they maybe trade or something like that. Now, if you look back on all of these trades that Snead has made, they've been for mostly instrumental pieces. I mean, the one outlier, you could say, is uh, Brandon Cooks. They got him from New England, but they still made the Super Bowl the following year, but obviously Cooks is not on the team anymore. But the other trades... Jalen Ramsey from Jacksonville, and then Matthew Stafford last offseason from Detroit. So technically, the strategy worked. So you can't really fault Les Snead. You know, there were many people who were questioning Snead, saying, what are you doing drafting all these picks? You know, it's called selling out to get a championship. And as we've seen in football history uh, in the NFL, if you create this sort of super team, like in the NBA, where they create big threes and stuff like that, it does not work in the NFL except for this year. You know, they traded all of their draft picks 
and got some very instrumental pieces. Jalen Ramsey, you know, he didn't play his best, but he was still very crucial in the Rams run to the, to the uh, championship. Matthew Stafford, already a huge improvement over Jared Goff. He actually won the Rams a Super Bowl, unlike Goff in 2019. So, you know, even when you heard Sneed, when he got up on the stage, he was saying, you know, F them picks. He was starting a chant even while wearing the shirt. So he's kind of, it's kind of like a big, I told you so to LA and the whole NFL fan base saying this strategy can work. It worked for me. So let me bask in my glory. And honestly, everyone was just having a great time from Aaron Donald shirtless to Matthew Stafford, a little drunk, you know, even Tom Brady threw out a tweet saying, make sure you mix some water in there. It was just, you know, a lot of guys were who were in that parade were having the time of their lives, but it's Les Snead who wore an F them picks shirt and basically basked in the glory of his strategy for a Rams Super Bowl win has earned himself into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you're getting your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any other platform, or watching us on YouTube. Make sure, as always, you follow our other pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.